0: So my name is Alec, um, and if you're new here, I'm obviously not Mike Mariner. Mike Mariner and Sabrina are on vacation in North Carolina, a much-deserved vacation. And back in January, Mike was planning out the semester, if you will, and he said, I want you to preach in March on Isaiah 53, which I was all kinds of excited about because I love that passage. And then he said, I want you to preach on May 15th, and you can preach on anything you want wow, okay, that's uh, an honor and it's kind of scary. But the cool thing was is that I said, that's great because I have a message that I want to preach. I've actually wanted to preach this message for about two or three years now. Uh, So I just pray that the Lord right now will um, touch your heart with this message the way my heart has been touched by this message because I've been living out the truth of this message now for about 15 years. As you see in your bulletin or on the screen, this message is about works. And whether or not works are an obligation for us, or are they an opportunity for us. So I'm going to be contrasting worldly works and the worldly rewards that come with them versus kingdom works and the kingdom rewards that come with that. And I'm going to do this by telling two stories one to start with is about my father, and then I'll do another story at the end. And in the middle, we're going to do some biblical theology. Okay, so you might learn some history. You might uh, get your your theology um, just kind of solidified. So let me tell you about my father, Art Paul. He loved hunting and fishing. He loved wildlife. He left Virginia in about 1965, came up to Alaska, sight unseen, signed up to study biology at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and um, immediately got a seasonal job with the new state and their Department of Fish and Game, doing enforcement, of fishing infractions, etc. Eventually, he gets himself a bride, he has two young daughters, and as he's starting out this career, the state decides that if you're going to work in this division, you need to become an Alaska state trooper and go through the training of all, become a fully sworn officer of the law. And so my dad never wanted to be a cop. In fact, he probably wasn't really built personality-wise to do so. He wanted to be alone in the Woods. But he did what he had to do because he had an obligation to take care of my mother and my sisters. So he dedicated himself to this. And he showed up every day on time. And he figured out how to become a cop and a good one. In fact, he became a really good cop. And in 1977, he was named the Alaska State Trooper of the Year. If we can go ahead and have the next slide. So my mom and dad went downtown to the Hotel Captain Cook where my father was feted, and celebrated and given a plaque with a badge on it saying Trooper of the Year by the popular governor, Jay Hammond. My father is the third from the left there. He had hair longer than I had hair. (laughs) That was kind of the pinnacle of his career. The state of Alaska did not love my father. They were obligated to him because he was doing work for them. And my father loved the state of Alaska physically, but he did not love the state of Alaska politically. He was obligated to them because he needed the money. This is a pay-for-performance contractual agreement. And for the most part, we don't get plaques or bonuses celebrating our our work, we just do our job, and then we get what we agreed to in response for our work, and we go about our lives. Now, the thing is, sadly, there are major world religions that have, for 2,000 years, pushed the idea that our relationship as people of God with God is a contractual agreement, where if we do our part, God is obligated to give us salvation. Or conversely, God obligates us to work, 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 work to earn our righteousness so that he's being willing to be in our presence. The problem with that is that's not biblical. It's actually heretical. Now, the idea is old enough and has infected our culture enough that it sounds legitimate. You've probably thought at times that God works like this. I know that you have friends who think God works like this. It's a cancer. It infected the church in the 5th century under a monk named Pelagius. And originally the church was able to bat it away with resolutions saying, no, that's heresy, but the, the cancer always comes back, right, or often comes back. So the cancer infected the church to the point where one pope decided, you know, if not completely, do you have to be earning your righteousness in order to be saved? At least partially, you have to earn your righteousness to be saved. That's official church doctrine. And it still is official Catholic church doctrine. You have to do more than believe in Christ. You have to perform works. The sad thing is, is that salvation is a gift, and they've taken that gift and watered it down to where it's supposedly an obligation. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4.4, now to the one who works, wages are credited, not, are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. So anytime that you add works righteousness to your faith in Christ alone, you water down the gospel. So, since the dawn of our faith, going back to the New Testament letters, the book of Galatians, etc., this has been a central battleground in the war for spiritual truth. Is salvation found in faith alone, or is it faith plus works, or is it both? God no doubt appreciated the work that my father did. God no doubt appreciates the good work that you do. When you do your work, do it as unto the Lord. He will appreciate that. But what God really loves is when we serve out of love for him and love for others, and there's a different kind of reward for that when we're doing it with a biblical, loving Christ motive. Worldly work has its own set of worldly rewards. Bonuses, banquets, plaques. But kingdom works have much richer and eternal rewards. So today, I want to explore what the Bible says about works with a threefold aim of gaining a solid biblical theology of works, the proper motivation to do works, and what the rewards are. This is important. Hear me. If you have a bad theology of works, you have a bad theology of God. And not only is your joy at stake... But your salvation could be as well. So, it's important now that we're going to dive into the biblical theology of works by defining what I mean by works. And for our purposes today, it's going to be basically uh, three categories, three subdivisions of works, okay? Now, in your bulletin, you can follow along and write in the blanks, etc. The first one is required religious actions. In the Old Testament, it is sacrificing an animal. If you're a man, it's about being circumcised, etc., right? If you're a Catholic, it's going to Mass and uh, going to confession and perform and praying the rosary or whatever. If you're a Mormon, then you have to do a certain work in the temple and then you have to go out and do your mission trip. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you have to knock on a certain number of doors and hand in a certain number of biblical tracts and then you tell the people in Brooklyn how much work you've done so that they can give you a certain amount of God credits. Required religious actions. The next is what I would call universally positive actions. They don't have to be inspired by any particular faith. You just go out and decide to do good deeds, community service, right? These are things that it doesn't make any difference. If an atheist is feeding the poor, that's a good thing and everybody appreciates it. And then the last subdivision of what I'm referring to as works in this message, and then whenever I say works, you know, it could be good works or good deeds or community service, whatever, would be self-restraint, okay? This would be disciplined avoidance of things that you've been told are wrong or that you know are wrong. This category could culturally be called do not drink, do not smoke, do not chew, and don't go with girls to do. Now, according to the Christian market research firm, the Barna Group, 60% of people believe that they will get to heaven based on being good enough. The majority of people believe that it's a curve. This idea is not biblical. Thankfully, 500 years ago this October, another monk named Martin Luther came along, and he said, hey, what we're teaching doesn't line up with scripture. This is wrong. We're saved by faith alone and not by our works and not by these human traditions. And thus began the Protestant Reformation. Huge. The Bible clearly teaches... God does not grade on a curve. Last week, Mrs. Foley shared her testimony and said, God doesn't grade on a curve. And I was like, oh. she took my message, she set it up. How cool is that? So the Apostle Paul, in the book of Ephesians, in chapter two, verse eight, says a passage that probably many of you have memorized. This is probably the second scripture that I memorized when I became a follower of Christ. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Grace means unmerited favor. It is by unmerited favor you've been saved through faith. Therefore, you can get off the treadmill of seeking God's approval their work. We all know people who are constantly striving to gain approval from God. And we've all been there and spent time striving on that heaven or bust treadmill that doesn't go anywhere. All it does is wear you out. All it does is leave you jaded. And wondering what's the point? But listen to what Jesus says. Matthew eleven, twenty eight through thirty. Don't put your hope in your good works. They cannot save you. On the contrary, if you put your trust in your own earned righteousness, you minimize the work done on the cross. And that's bad news. In just a minute, I'm going to read a passage from the book of Galatians. But first, I want to give you kind of the context for it. The book of Galatians is written by Paul. And it's describing uh, a period of time where there was bad theology happening at the church in Galatia. And Paul's in Jerusalem, he's about to go to Galatia, but he sent a letter in advance of him. And he's going up there with Barnabas, he's going to address the bad theology. What is the bad theology? The bad theology is that all these people who grew up in the culture of Judaism, following the law and earning their righteousness and trying to be perfect, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, have now converted to Christianity in that they believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus but they don't like that non-Jews are coming to Jesus so easily by just believing. And so they're saying, you must, in order to be really part of this community and accepted and saved, you must follow the rules of the Old Testament law. You must follow the Mosaic law, specifically circumcision. That's the outward expression that you are a follower of the law of Moses. And Paul knew that If you add works to your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, you minimize the gospel. It's no longer good news, okay? So we'll go to Galatians 5, and I'll read verses 1 through 4. Of course, it'll be on the screen. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery— You can hear him yelling, right? Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, that quote and every other quote that I have for you today is coming from the NIV, okay? But this particular verse, verse 4, I want to read to you the King James version of it because I think it's particularly powerful the way it was put. It says, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Can you imagine that? No effect unto you. <clears throat> Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. I know you've heard the phrase fallen from grace before. That has been borrowed by poets and by authors and screenwriters for centuries. It is a powerful statement. It's a condemning statement. It's a sad statement. And where did it come from? It came from people trying to add self-righteousness to the work of Jesus. Now, it would be unfortunate to preach a message on works and not address what probably some of you have heard before and are thinking, what about what James says? So, let me tell you a quick little story about my first experience with the statement, faith without works is dead. Uh, Fifteen years ago, I was a new follower of Christ. I was living in Arizona. A coworker of mine was a Mormon, he had gone on his mission, he had studied his version of the Bible, um, and his own scriptures pretty well. He knew things better than I did. And as we were talking, he was talking about all the things that he had to do to know that he would be going to heaven, and all the things he had to refrain from in order to get to heaven, and how it was something that he had to strive for. And I had learned Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and I was like, well, okay, what about where it says that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is a gift of God and not of works so that no man can boast. And I didn't even finish the scripture before he said, but faith without works is dead. Okay, apparently that's one of the first verses that you learn if your theology is faith plus works. Now, the conversation ended there because I didn't know what to say. I was like, "Uh, I don't even know where that comes from, but You sound like you know what you're talking about. And so I decided to become a little bit more of a student of the Bible. And, you know, start with the book of John. Then start reading the letters. Then go to the Old Testament and read it. (laughs) There's value. In order to understand what he said, you have to understand the context. This one book, written by James, is not describing your salvation as though you have to have works in order to be saved. He's saying, we don't see that you are saved unless there's fruit in your life that shows there's been a transformation that's happened. What does it actually say in chapter two of James, verses 14 through 18? It reads, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? As some people were clearly doing. They didn't have a change in lifestyle. They just say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a follower, sure. Can such faith save them? Suppose your brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So if you examine the statement in context, James is not arguing you must do good works to be saved, He is arguing that if you are truly to be considered saved, you will exhibit it in how you live. It's not that your faith died because you didn't add works to it. It's because it wasn't alive in the first place. And I know that some of you at this point are wondering, well, Alec, are you just works bashing? Do we not do good? Why do good works? Let's go back to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Think about that. One of the primary reasons that we were created was to do good works. He has specific ones in mind that He prepared in advance for you to do. That should be encouraging to you. (laughs) It's not a burden it's a joy. It's what you created for. Now, I'm going to transition now to the second major section of my message, biblical motivation for works, and by doing that, I just wanted to share Hebrews 10:24. The author says, "Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good works." Because love and good works go hand in hand. So, what's the biblical motivation to do good works? Let's listen to what Jesus says. In Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, a Pharisee asked Jesus this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He's trying to basically trap Jesus. And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If you've come to Clearwater more than once, you probably know that we pretty much close out every service by saying this exact same thing, because we want you to love the Lord and love others as yourself. It's huge. Let's go forward to Matthew 25, and this time, again, it's Jesus talking, and Jesus talking about what it will be like when we get to heaven and get to converse with him about what we've done. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So the reward of doing good works for people around the earth is that we are effectively loving Jesus. The most appropriate possible response. Now, what are the rewards for works if it's not something that we must do to gain entry to heaven and eternal life? The first reward of works is that God remembers. As the author of Hebrews says, chapter 6, verse 10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. Listen to this. And the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. It's about loving him. God doesn't just remember, but he rewards. Flashing forward into Hebrews 11. Verse 6, Mike has shared this message in the past. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Okay, so scripture tells us that it's reasonable to expect rewards for those who seek him. What kind of rewards could we expect? I return again to words from Jesus. Matthew 25. I'll be reading verses 19 through 20. It's a parable. It's actually the final third of the parable, but I don't want to read the entire thing, so I'll set it up as fast as I can. This is the parable of the bags of gold. There are, there's a master and there's three servants. One servant is given a bag of gold. One servant is given three bags of gold and turns it into six bags of gold. One, master, one servant is given five bags of gold and turns it into ten bags of gold. So This particular passage is addressing the the servant who did the best work, and was most faithful. So, started in verse 19. After a long time, the master of the servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, "You entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more." And his master replied, "Well done." Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Don't you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, the first time that you see Christ face to face? So, kingdom work comes with, kingdom rewards and so as i alluded to earlier in closing this morning i want to return to my father he retired after 24 years of being an alaska state trooper in 1995 and after that he took a couple of years off understandably it's high stress work right then he got into landscaping because he wanted to be outside getting his hands dirty And in 2002, my mother, who had been fighting diabetes, came down with a very, very uh, heavy diagnosis of kidney failure. And he told his co-workers, guys, I'm sorry, but my full-time job is going to be taking care of my wife. And so, with kidney failure, you either have to have a kidney replacement or you have to go on dialysis. Dialysis, if you're not familiar with it, is basically a process where they take your blood out of you, they put it in a washing machine, they add some medicine back in, they put your blood back into you, and it works as a kidney for you. It's a kidney machine, removing toxins. It's a painful process. It's a bloody process. You go into a dialysis center, 50 chairs, no walls, no private rooms, You get hooked up to your machine. You sit there for four or five hours. It's draining. It's hard. Um, And my father didn't want my mom to go through that alone, so he said, I'm going to sit there with you all day long for every session. And he did. And he did that for seven years, three days a week five hours a session, the only spouse or relative in the entire dialysis center that was there with their loved one the entire time. Uh, My mom has actually been on dialysis now for 12 years. She's here tonight. Would you you acknowledge her? (laughs) Dialysis is a miracle that has kept my mom alive. Unfortunately, after seven years of that, my father was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and he couldn't sit there with mom anymore because he was in his own bed at Providence, or the other hospital anyway. And in early uh, January 2010, he went to be with the Lord. But while my dad was there, he wasn't a nuisance. He actually was very very loved he would go there with his lunchbox and he would sit there next to mom in a considerably less comfortable chair and he would share cookies from his lunchbox with the patients or the nurses and the techs that were nearby and he would always share his old school newspaper with anybody who wanted to read it after him he would sneak out for a smoke with the people who were smokers And he told more than his fair share of dirty jokes. (sighs) But the thing is, is that he became beloved by the patients and by the staff, loving others as himself. When he died, the the staff at Fresenius Medical Clinic, right here across Providence Drive, uh, put together a collection and made a plaque for my dad. Excuse me. And it reads In remembrance of Mr. Art, a life well lived. Thank you for your devotion and willingness to help. You showed us every day that it is better to give than to receive. We will miss you, our friend. The staff of FMC Anchorage, January 2010. I had talked about treasures in heaven. I think that's what he was seeking, and loving others as he loved himself. So which plaque? The one that the troopers gave him, that says Trooper of the Year, or the one that came from dialysis? Which, and it's not so much which plaque, which narrative behind the plaque, right? Which one do you think meant more to my family? And which one do you think meant more to my father? And which one do you think meant more to our heavenly father? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Good works are not something we must do to get to heaven. They are something that we get to do on our way to heaven, the path secured by the work of Jesus. Thanks for listening. Heavenly Father, I praise you for who you are. I praise you that it is not by my righteousness that I get to be with you someday because I would never make it. You've transferred your righteousness to me. You've taken my sin away. And I will be able to be with you and my Father some sweet day. I pray that the truth of this message would break down false paradigms in the hearts and minds of the people who are here today or who will ever hear this recording. And I pray that people would see the truth that salvation is found in Christ alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.